0: Hello, welcome to The Research Podcast. This is the show where we explore ongoing changes in the post-COVID research and technology world. I'm your host, Lipsa Nag. So let's get started. Before we start, I want to say that I hope you're doing well and are fully vaccinated by now. I hope that you've also had a nice summer break compared to the year before with a bit more outdoor time. We took the summer off to unwind after a difficult year and we're back with an exciting new episode for you. Today, we're exploring the role of network effects and peer monitoring on technology adoption. Our guest today is Juni Singh, an economist who specializes in behavioral economics, networks, and developmental economics. Juni has had a rich and international scientific career. She holds a PhD from the Paris School of Economics. She was a researcher at MIT J-PAL. Besides academic research, Juni has also been a researcher and consultant at the World Bank, where she worked on framing policy for global challenges. Juni is an incoming postdoc at Caltech, where she will now be working on climate and sustainability research. Welcome to the research podcast, Juni. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. This is so cool. Thank you. So just to start off a little bit, tell, tell us a little bit about your journey as a researcher. What field did you do your PhD in and, um, and why did like economics and especially uh, behavioral economics? Why did that interest you? So I, I started my
1: economics journey from uh, doing a bachelor's at St. Stephen's. And I, pretty much after the bachelor's, I was convinced I wanted to do a master's uh, and then sort of take it from there. And after my master's, I did join briefly at the World Bank as, as a research assistant. And then I realized I wanted to do more of my original research uh, rather than working under somebody else. And hence, I thought it's a good idea to sort of uh, go do a PhD. And initially, the reason I started doing economics was was to work for poverty elevation. And, and This question was also asked to me in, in the in the uh, Stephen's interview, and I remember like distinctly saying, um, "I want to do economics because I want to." bring about a change in the world <laughs> and it, like make lives of people uh, make people's lives better in nepal and all around the world so in the in the spirit of poverty alleviation and so on and i did tell them like um, all the other professions sort of do 9 to 5 jobs and economists seem to be doing just a little bit more than just uh, looking at stuff on the computer um, I mean, which varies from economist to economist, I understood later. <laughs> and then I sort of uh, started my PhD uh, with the same motive in mind to find topics that interest me and, and that can contribute to the broader policy literature. And I was very much interested in behavioral economics right from the start. Um, and there's, I think there's a very concrete reason to that. So, of course, I was interested in development, being from Nepal. But there is often a, an assumption in economics that everybody is rational, Rational in the sense everybody maximizes their best possible outcome. And, and then they make the decision, basically. And there were so, so many instances where I questioned this assumption. I mean, even in class at in Stephens, I often um, questioned this assumption and people were like, okay, if you want to go beyond this assumption, you need to sort of turn to behavioral economics. And I think uh, uh, doing behavioral economics in my master's pushed me towards thinking about uh, inconsistencies in behavior, how that sort of affects uh, economic outcomes, because uh, to be honest, nobody is perfectly rational. Everybody has limited information. They have uh, emotional constraints. They have so many other constraints, you know, Be a time inconsistent. What I do at T is not true. I'm not happy at T plus one. So there are loads of uh, factors that come within this box of uh, behavioral economics. And I uh, wanted to pick out one or two factors and uh, then try to sort of connect it to developing economics and give a broader picture. So this is where I started my journey as as a researcher.
0: So as I understand correctly, you did a lot of your experimental work in Nepal on the field what is the most interesting part of doing experimental work um, in this field in Nepal if you compare it to experimental work that is done elsewhere and and what are the outcomes that uh, that you hope to have and if, you, if you've if you matched them?
1: So I think a, a parallel uh, field that goes with behavioral is experimental economics. So I also do a little bit of mixture of experiments with behavioral and development components. And so the idea of experimental economics is basically you make people play a set of games, a set of activities, you record their behavior and then you do a your analysis on, 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 on how they behave, basically. I mean, it's, it's like uh, science experiments, but a bit more less with machines and more with humans, which makes it way more complicated, but also. Uh, interesting in some sense. And so for experiments, I also have done lab experiments. So lab experiments are technically, you invite a group of students to play a set of games and you record their behavior, but it's in a very controlled environment and it's in a computer lab and they're basically interacting with their screen. After doing this uh, lab e- experiment, I was convinced that I wanted to take this beyond just this control setting and into real people and real lives. And I think that was really the primary motivation behind uh, doing this experiment what we call lab in the field uh, in Nepal. And I think what really sets it apart is the the opportunity to interact with real human beings. I mean, not just in the context of intellectual curiosity, but beyond that sort of understanding their way of life, understanding that there are so many constraints that you have to adhere to and that you're not only taking on the role of a researcher, but also as a project manager, you are managing you're managing your enumerators, research coordinator, and this you're also raising funds at the same time. So I think that was a very interesting Interesting experience and what what was the most rewarding in some sense was to be able to interact with these uh, people in the field, especially our, our some sample was focused on women in uh, rural Nepal and Makwanpur, so it was a very rich set of interaction that make you think about broader issues and not just in, in the narrow thinking of the, the intellectual thinking and uh, i think one thing that i realized from doing the experiments was often the women they asked us you know what are you doing this for you know is there a program that is going to come is it, are you going to uh, bring something out of like some public goods out of this uh, program and at that point in time all that we could tell them was we're doing this for research and we're going to write a paper <laughs> which was which is a which is a little okay at the end of the day like the product is not going to be something that's going to touch their lives immediately but maybe in the long run uh, out of uh, talking to the local governments and so on and so I think that was also an interesting uh, that's really finding interesting or realization.
0: I think it does uh, it does affect them in a way You you do bring about changes indirectly because a lot of these research papers are used for making policies right because this is like uh, the data that you get, gather from the real world on the ground and they can be used later on in the, by people who work in policy making, as you were also interested in doing so mm-hmm. could you tell us like when you work in policy making how was how was the experience for you and uh, how would you compare that to like working in the field
1: so I wish that policymakers use data coming from papers and data coming from uh, the field. But to be honest, I'm not 100% sure they do that. <laughs> <laughs> unless you're big names, like unless you're super famous economists, and then the government really values your input, then you do prog- projects together with the government. I think then that sort of translates into policy more immediately. But otherwise, it's it remains sort of within the academic bubble in some sense. I mean, of course, it's not, not a generation, somebody somewhere is going to use it at some point, at least we hope. But. We'll see. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> uh, and with respect to uh, policy making, so uh, I'm, I'm working with the World Bank as a, as a short-term consultant on one of the projects uh, in Nepal, so trying to look at federalism. And I think the the, the experience at the bank and uh, in the field is very very different uh, in in multiple ways actually, because in the field you're sort of your own boss. You have the time to do what you want. You have the creative freedom to sort of move things and and do things according to uh, your research question, your the context, and you really. Have this this place to play around, basically flexibility, to do your own things. Uh, whereas at the bank, it's more structured. Uh, you have certain sets of things to be done, you you need to do that. And beyond that, I mean, of course, you can also do your own stuff on the site, but that's not primarily your job description. So I think th- those are very two different worlds. And even in terms of time constraints, I feel like in the field, you you have your own, you're setting your time constraints. Like you are saying, okay, I have two months to finish this lab in the field experiment, this is what I'm going to do. So you have your your own time constraints. And I'm, of course, you know, in research research, uh, there's not really a hard hard time constraint unless you're looking for tenure or unless there's a pressing issue that's that's behind you whereas in policy i think there's more it's more Term to term, it's more uh, quick uh, work to be done because the government needs it. It's more demand driven versus the field or the, the academic world is more knowledge driven, I would say, whereas uh, academia, is, uh, the policy world is more demand driven. So you don't have the time to sort of say, OK, I'm going to do a field work and I'm going to find out answer for this question because the government needs the answer then and there. So you sort of need to rely on whatever material you have at hand, the data you know, your experience, and so on. So I think that's those are very uh, two different worlds, and I think both really of them have their
0: charms. So what are the timelines that uh, that we're talking about when, when we're making these policy documents?
1: So policy documents, it's it depends from organizations to organization. So for the for World Bank, for instance, they have June as the end of the fiscal term. So June to June is their fiscal term, and then they have the mid. Uh, uh, Mid fiscal year, so they have certain deliverables to be to be given, like a policy report uh, report to the government. So they have short deadlines.
0: So it's basically like domain-driven uh, demands in a way. So if if it's a bank that's asking for these policy documents or any other organization, they set the timeline. Mm,
1: correct, exactly. It's very demand-driven. It's And generally, so this is, I think these are two very different worlds and I'm sort of trying to navigate both and find a common way, but more and more, it seems like there is no common way. <laughs> There's either... Either you go into academic world or you go into sort of a policy, international organization slash uh, think tanks maybe is a little bit of the middle ground, but they're not uh, that many currently.
0: That's a great segue to my next question. You finished your PhD, then you did a postdoc, you started working at, a world, at, at the World Bank right after that, and now you're thinking of going back into academia you might get an academic position soon. What's going on uh, in your mind? And how do you see those two worlds? And what do you think, like someone who's doing a PhD in your field or in your domain, what are the things they should uh, keep in mind when they're making these transitions?
1: So I think that's that's a very interesting question, because I just went through the job market and did hundreds of applications for university, um, ended up with a postdoc position, but I also wanted to sort of uh, taste the policy world in some sense and hence i took up this world bank job and i'm, I'm glad that i did uh, because i was sort of only focusing on the cons of academia and and trust me there are many cons <laughs> so you sort of get like you you don't have a job stability you have to fight for tenure um i mean i think the main punch was really your writing I mean, your, your final product or how you define your productivity in terms of how many papers you publish and where you publish, which is, for me, a little um, limiting. Limiting or also, I mean, it's knowledge creation, but at the same time, uh, true world impact is, I felt, was sort of limited. And then I tried uh, the policy world and it's closer to true world in some sense because it's demand driven. It's somebody's dem- asking you for that piece of information and you're giving it to them and you hope that they're going to use it in some ways. Um, But at the same time, like I mentioned, um, I realized that the creative freedom part is pretty much it's, it's not curtailed per se because you're always free to do what you want to do but you that's not your job description innovation and coming up with new questions and this this sort of curiosity is not a part of your day-to-day job whereas in academia in spite of all these of all these negative points i think uh, the flexibility to do what you want to look at questions that you want and also to collaborate with whoever you want is i think super interesting and and That makes it also possible to do a little bit of policy, but not necessarily completely policy, because you can always collaborate with governments, you can collaborate with people in the bank. It's fun. It's fun to discover.
0: Yeah, I think uh, you do have more creative freedom in a way to do what you want and to collaborate with whoever you want. Uh, You set your own timelines, like you said earlier, and uh, those are like the big pros of working in an academic lab and, and kind of managing your own research that you don't necessarily have when you walk elsewhere. So I think mm. there is a there is a significant advantage to doing something that is so creative. Tell me, what is the one uh, research project that you're really, really proud of that you've worked on?
1: Um, I would say the the lab in the field experiment in, in Nepal. So let me just summarize for our uh, listeners what exactly we did. So the idea was me along with uh, my my co-author Julio. We basically uh, designed a lab in the field experiment where we wanted to understand uh, in in a rural context uh, how people interact in different group compositions. uh, Where how do you uh, interact when you're with your close friends versus when you are with people you do not know very well and in such settings do you want to be monitored and you really wanted to tap into this this network that existed in the village between between women so i know lipsa lipsa is my friend hence i need to behave in a certain manner because i don't want lipsa to cut off ties (laughs) so that that's sort of a reasoning and so so we were Reputational concern to see uh, how people behaved, and to allow them to choose uh, monitors for for this uh, lab in the field experiment, where it was a simple uh, game where we gave them. Uh 10 tokens of different colors, and we told them, um, you, need, you need to decide how much to keep for yourself and how much to contribute uh, for the public pot, which is then going to be equally distributed. This is like a standard game in, in experimental economics. Um, and so I think that was a super interesting. And uh, the work that we did, the funds that we collected, I think we really were able to carry it out at that scale. And uh, I'm really proud of it.
0: Oh wow, yeah, that is amazing because you you kind of managed something from start to finish and you created a research project out of scratch. And mm-hmm. when I was reading about it, the one thing that really interested me was um, was your work on technology acceptability and uh, kind of the the impressions people have about uh, new technology when it's uh, uh, let's say presented to them or marketed to them. Because mm-hmm. um, I think once we were talking about this together and we were thinking like, uh, how can we use what's the research that's being developed in behavioral economics in the technology sector? And I think uh, often when you're creating a new technology, especially when it's deep tech, the challenge is always like for new users, mm-hmm. how will they see it? How will they accept it? And I think there are there, there's just like so much advancements, being, there's so many advancements being made in, um, in uh, behavioral economics in this field. And it, I would, it would really interest me to learn a little bit more about like, how you thought about this project and what are like some learnings you had along the way uh, when, when you were working mm-hmm. on it.
1: Um, so the technology adoption project is actually a, a work in progress where we want to use um, this, this idea of social network, basically. So I am more prone to adopt a new technology if I see my friends adopting it. So really this peer effect, what we call in economics, where I'm influenced by choices of others. Um, and so what we wanted to do is we have uh, we collected this social network data uh, when I mean social network data is we ask uh, women in the village who do you talk to who do you spend your free time with who do you borrow money from and so on and so forth and they take names of women within the village so if uh, I say Lipsa is my friend then we are connected basically and so we draw a social network map on the basis of this uh, this questionnaire, um, and so for each village we had a social network map, so we know exactly uh, where each person is placed in terms of uh, who's more central, who's well connected, who has more friends, and so on and so forth. So um, we basically wanted to see if uh, we can influence their adoption or usage of the technology on the basis of uh, information about their friends' usage. So if you say twenty uh, percent of your friends think this is a good technology, and so on and so forth. So i think uh, that that's the uh, idea behind this project and i think there's a there's a rich literature that already looks at uh, different other ways of technology adoption um, like uh, giving a demonstration in front of everybody in the village uh, and then and there's this uh, super interesting um, papers looking at uh, who to give information to in order to sort of spread it around. So, for instance, take up of microfinance, who should you inform in the village? So most people come to know and most people tend to adopt more. So I think this is an interesting twist to, to, the, to the whole setting and particularly using uh, networks and friends of friends is, is really super interesting for me.
0: Do you think that can that's in a way that uh, these kind of studies are kind of, will translate other sectors or um, different domains in the future
1: i think for sure i think there's a lot of space uh for innovative work in uh, understanding individual decision choices uh from both the network point of view but also from the individual's uh Decision making point of view. Um, and I did have another uh, research project which was more lab in the field, lab experiment, so more controlled sort of a computer setting where uh, I give you information about certain uh, aspects and certain options and I don't give you information about the others and I try to see how you learn about this new option which is unknown or more ambiguous than the other option. We also had done uh, work there. Um, and I think this, this learning how people perceive new information um, so all this is, is super interesting and these days people are also doing uh, what they call scrapping from Twitter and like getting data and trying to understand like uh, what's happening so I think there is a lot of space for innovation um, I think what I'm more afraid of is to sort of think about the priorities in, in academia and I think if there can be a partnership between academia and industry or you know like to look at specific questions then I think it would be much more productive uh, because sometimes, like, academic questions become too intellectual too quickly and hence they remain abstract. And so, once you start talking about X, X's and Y's without really applying those X's and Y's to something concrete, I think the, it can get very easily lost in the academic bubble and then it just becomes uh, another paper in a fancy journal, basically. So, to translate uh, that knowledge that's created into something else I think that's that's uh, super interesting and often um, there there are loads of uh, also constraints in terms of uh, how it translates to real world like there are some assumptions we make there are um, there are models that take uh, certain form because of uh, certain characteristics that we're trying to look at and it's hard to uh, do everything because I mean humans are very unpredictable you know? We, we know how unpredictable <laughs> we <Yeah>. are <laughs> uh, and so like uh, to really like come up with a concrete model and to say this is how all human humans behave I think that's that's still going to be a little challenging but to just try to tackle like small aspects of it like you said uh, like tech adoption like new technologies here like uh, deep tech is here like how can you make people adopt more and and so on so these kind of uh, projects I think give us uh, a step into understanding more and more of this, and I feel like in the longer run, um, economists need to work with psychologists. There's there's a there's an upcoming field of neuroeconomics where they sort of map brain image, um, and there's also uh, artificial intelligence, sort of a, a machine learning that's coming in yeah. economics right now, which is becoming a very hot topic, which I need to learn, which I haven't yet. <laughs> <laughs> so I think um, yeah, definitely with partnership, I think. There's a lot that can...
0: Yeah, actually, I was uh, re- recently listening to a um, talk by Sylvie Chocron who's a um, neuropsychologist at uh, INCC in Paris. And she was talking about how like uh, these logos of large companies like McDonald's, like FedEx, um, and I think she mentioned a few more, use these like little, let's say, nudges. That's how they're called in neuromarketing. Um which is like a field that combines neuroscience, psychology, and a lot of economics also, a little bit mm-hmm. of marketing to, to kind of appeal to the subconscious state of the brain. So in a way, like when you associate um, the, when, when you look at the logo of FedEx, uh, for example, there's, a, there's an arrow hidden in there and you associate like uh, the logo with fastness or with a certain direction. And she's talking about the logo of Carrefour, which has, uh, she's a supermarket chain which has a sea hidden in it uh, and different roads. So that was actually pretty interesting. And I think that's something that uh, neuroscientists have worked on with uh, with economists, with uh, psychologists, and in a way to kind of orient people more towards what they want or what they should think about when they're thinking about a certain brand.
1: Yeah, we have a big uh, literature on nudging. And, um, there's this uh, super interesting book by uh, Kahneman and Trevor Ski who also won Nobel Prize in Economics, uh, Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow. Yeah,
0: Thinking Fast and Slow. I love that book. <laughs>
1: mm, it's super interesting. But the thing is, like, no matter how many times I read the books, I'm still prone to making those... Uh, those, those mistakes like reference point and so on and so forth.
0: Switching gears a little bit because we were talking a little bit about uh, lab in the field experiments and basically the projects that you worked on during your PhD and postdoc. How was it for you uh, last year with the pandemic? Uh, did you face any challenges to do uh, your experiments, um, given that a lot of them are on the field? So uh, luckily, I finished all my experiments before
1: the pandemic so we did this in 2000 end of 2018 beginning 2019 so i was mostly doing data analysis Um and i think the one big challenge was uh to sort of remain sane in the in the in during the pandemic because it was also the time when i was defending my phd it was almost a year ago now january 2020 and so to do all this virtual thing and to get the um the draft ready and sort of to get everything together i think that was uh that was challenging Um, with the pandemic and how to organize the defense in in the end i mean it it all worked out and i was opening a bottle of uh, cremo not champagne cremo um, (laughs) after the phd so it it all worked out in the end Uh, but it was it was quite challenging
0: how do you how do you think uh, your research field for example will evolve as a result of the constraints that uh, that the pandemic posed on them. So do you think uh, virtual networking seminars will be more commonplace or do you think networking will go back to, to being physical?
1: So uh, one thing that I uh, should mention was I was in the job market last year. Where in, in economics, this is this fancy term job market. Basically, you apply for academic positions and you have a, a set of interviews and you basically end up with a... Um, Position, academic, uh, uh, either a postdoc or an assistant professor position. Um, And I think because of the pandemic, the positions were cut into half. So already, I mean, already the academic market is not great. It's super competitive. It's limited positions for loads of PhD students that graduate. Uh, And with the pandemic, with the onset of the pandemic, the job opportunities were even more limited, specifically in the US and Australia. There were, nobody was hiring in Australia. US still some universities, but it was again down by 50, 60%. Europe also, it was down by 30, 20, 30%, I would say, but still, There were universities that were hiring. Apparently, because of the pandemic, uh, universities changed their hiring strategy. And there was a lot of other background things going on. And so I think in the coming years, um, I think it's going to be still visible in the number of job offers that are going to be available uh, in January 2020 which is maybe slightly incremental from the last year's uh, job market, but not that much, I would say. And definitely seminars have been uh, virtual. I mean, presenting virtual was also a challenge because I really like the energy in the room to be like able to talk to people and see their reactions and really like to pick on that while presenting. But like presenting to a screen is like, oh, I hope you're listening. I hope like you're not doing something else. <laughs> so yeah. I think that was With the also... videos
0: off and you feel like you're yeah. talking uh, to, exactly. to avoid. Yeah,
1: to avoid exactly, and you're like, hmm, are you even listening to what I'm saying? And so <laughs> I think that was that was also took some getting used to. And um, I mean, hopefully, small seminars will still remain uh, virtual because it's also good for the environment. I mean, I, I would love to travel to new places but (laughs) from the viewpoint of sustainability maybe it's not that a good idea to travel for like two-day seminars Uh, but I think more and more they're trying to move uh, seminars to a more um, in-person setting because it's definitely different like especially um, networking and socializing in a conference like you're going for a coffee you suddenly meet like this professor you start talking you'll meet like a presenter you start talking so I think that's missing from the virtual scene I mean there are uh, conferences I went to which were trying to improve on that with GatherTown and these cool apps where you like you have an avatar and like you go around and you talk really? to people, which is super fun. Yeah, yeah it was super How fun. How does that work? You have like, a, it's called GatherTown and then they, they have a setting basically and then you just like walk around and if you want to look for somebody, you can type their name and they'll show you a path. And like with your mouse, you just like to go to the path. And then when you're in the vicinity of the person, you can talk to them. The problem is because it's optional. Like not everybody comes to the virtual one. So, mm-hmm. I mean, of course, professors who have other thousands of other things to do, some some of them show up, not all. Even like conference participants, maybe half of them are there. Whereas in a more in-person setting, you don't have the option to not be there. So I think that's why like the opportunity to interact is higher in an in-person uh, seminar than in...
0: Juni, could you tell us a little bit about the culture and economics, uh, what it's like today? And uh, do you think it needs to be more inclusive towards women and uh, and other minority groups? Or do you think it's fine the way it is? In another- it's definitely think- not fine the way it is. <laughs> <laughs> Another question I wanted to ask is, like, if, if you're aware uh, of any ways the pandemic has kind of affected the um, the diversity in economics itself, and how long do you think it will take to to come back to, to things, how they were before mm-hmm. the pandemic?
1: For sure. Like, I think economics is notoriously known for um, having a male dominance. Of course, it depends on the subset of, uh, like, which field you're talking about, behavioral versus development. Development, there are more women in um, balance. It's more balanced, whereas in theory, it's highly unbalanced, so they really varies from subfields. But I think overall, uh, there is definitely a problem of diversity and and lack of inclusion in economics. Uh, And the numbers for women who go on to do a PhD in economics and then end up with an academic job is also very, very low, actually. And and the reason behind is, I think there are are multiple reasons, but one of them, like there are professors who have done research on this, um, uh, Pascaline Dupa and the others, basically, and they find that apparently women are more um, aggressively asked questions compared to men like the questions that they asked in a conference is uh, they are they're interrupted more frequently, they're asked like a, a harder questions, sometimes irrelevant questions and so apparently like that's the case and I think that that study was like wow I mean we, we knew there was sort of an inclusion uh, problem but that sort of sets it uh, to the ground and I mean already the, the environment in econ, I think it also depends from department to department, especially like we're at conferences when, I mean not all departments are like that, not all conferences are like that but of course some where people are asking questions just for the sake of asking questions and they want to just prove their point and they're just stuck up on one point that they completely derail the presentation of the speaker for instance there are there are some examples of toxic work environment i mean it also depends on who you're working with and all the other factors but uh, economics is definitely very very competitive super competitive and often even if you get tenure track position to translate into associate professor positionship and to really like get a stable job it takes 10, 12, 13 years, basically. I think that, that window is also getting even longer now because now it's more common to do a postdoc than to immediately move to a tenure track position. So there are things that are changing. And yeah, I think we need to work a lot on improve, improving like inclusivity for women and also to just make economics a safer place I'm, I'm aware of uh, there's an organization called CSWEP, which is uh, there. They have uh, mentoring sessions for women, uh, for for even other PhD students, for minorities. There's also another association for minorities, so they're trying to like come up with more networking sessions more mentoring and try to like push people to go towards economics but unless i think the field gets uh, kinder in some sense and also more welcoming i think like if you if you're really going to the academic world you really need to be prepared to face like all kinds of people which is also true in a normal workspace i would say but i think in a normal workspace it's a little different because because you don't have that that creation that it's not your own creation in some sense you are you have a set work agenda and you're like working on uh, topics in, in policy or in like other settings. Whereas in academia, it's really your research. It's like your baby, you know, like you come up with this idea, you work on it, you talk to people, you like, you implement it. And so I think it becomes personal very quickly. And hence, uh, sometimes it's just like an ego game. Like it's just, <laughs> they're talking because like, you know, like I did this paper and this is like, you haven't looked at this, you haven't cited this paper. And then like this other set of saying, like, what are you doing? And And like people can very quickly get, aggressive in such a setting because it's, it's it's just more than your work it's
0: a part of you it's it's like your baby you right? know if i'm an economist and if i was an economics phd tomorrow um mm-hmm. besides academia and and what are the other fields where i could start having a career what do you, according to you uh, i think it really
1: depends on uh, your specialization so if you are doing behavioral development sort of networks you could do research organizations uh, like um, there 's Brook, uh, brookings institutions there 's uh, Center for Global Development and there 's also international organizations like the World Bank and there, there are uh, Bill Melinda Gates Foundation also all these different places uh, for development there 's also JPAL, for instance so uh, whereas if you 're doing more i u that 's industrial organization contracts uh, more more firm specific slash fund uh, sort of stuff then you can be a consultant at uh, google you can work at facebook i have a friend who's working at amazon for instance so i think it's really flexible it depends on what you're working at at that
0: moment and what sort of firms you think would fit your profile best so talking about the future what are you most excited for in 2021
1: in 2021 i think um 2021 or 2022 even. So I'm I'm (laughs) excited to like start this new postdoc because uh, it's going to be based in Caltech at California. So I'm looking forward to uh, working on topics on sustainability, connecting with behavioral economics and try to like push beyond just Uh, A paper, but also like try to really see how uh, we can do this in real life. And I think uh, what really stuck with me when I interviewed for this position was uh, they sort of said, uh, I mean, the organization was sort of questioning as to uh, what is what is the role of uh, social science research? Um, And that was really, I was like, ah, that's the question I I ask myself every day, you know, like, what is the role of my research in everyday life? Like, how is it changing people's lives? And so far, I think I've worked with local government somehow, a little bit of uh, remotely but it's not translated into anything concrete. I mean, also, I mean, it's at a very early, early stage. So it's more knowledge generation at this point, which is super interesting. And I think it's really nice when you find your niche, like people who understand your work and who are interested and who also work in similar backgrounds. And I mean, I look forward to like uh, working with people at Caltech and uh, discovering more of this uh, sustainability part and how we can uh, contribute from social science research, because I'm also going to be working with an interdisciplinary group um, computer scientists, political scientists, and so forth. Uh, if my fund comes through, we're also planning this uh, follow up on the lab in the field experiment, which would be done in October if uh, COVID permits. Um, so that would also, that's also something that I'm excited about.
0: Oh, wow there are so many challenges that we have to address in the future oh my god there's a cl- there's a climate challenge too many too many <laughs> there's too many <laughs> so how do you think the field of economics will evolve to address these challenges because now you're going to start working with scientists who work on sustainability but there are there like other new domains that are developing as a result of the of the challenges that we're facing currently or that we're going to face a few years from now i think like because of the pandemic a lot of
1: people started writing about covid and they like started doing experiments in developing country settings in And even for developed countries and and I think health economics like sort of picked up because of the pandemic, definitely sustainability is a theme. And I think they're going to be using more and more of uh, machine learning techniques, uh, natural language processing, also like use quality. So economics is is very obsessed with quantitative uh, data, quantitative methods. But I think in the coming years, it's going to be complemented with qualitative data, especially due to natural language processing and, uh, and machine learning sort of techniques. So I think that's going to be interesting to see how it goes forward. And uh, I think so in social networks is, is one of the most uh, interesting topics, like understanding peer effects, which it's always been there. But I think with this new network collection methods and being able to do experiment at a larger scale, both the lab and the field, I think there is... Uh, a lot to be done there too. I mean, I, I only know uh, advances in, in within my field, but there might be different other things for trade economists, for instance, there might be something else. Uh, for people working in industrial organization, they might be excited about contracts and so on. So again, it depends on your subdomain. But I think overall, I hope... Uh, Economists are able to sort of rise to the occasion and contribute beyond just uh, knowledge creation to really translate that knowledge creation to something tangible. I mean, I'm, I'm not even sure if we can do that. I don't know. What do you think? Can, Maybe that's think a challenge. We, <laughs> can we, as researchers, like translate knowledge into something tangible,
0: or do we need to be politicians or policymakers? I think it depends on what you define um, as tangible. Because if I come that's from a very like good the question. other end of the spectrum. <laughs> This is this is the challenge that I've been trying to address for a, for a while now, because uh, my PhD, as you know, was like uh, in a dark optics room for four years. And I was like, <laughs> no way I have to get out and I have to kind of use what I'm developing outside the the lab and potentially in the real world. So, yeah, for me, that would be something tangible, like uh, you create something that can be used in real life that was once uh, a technology that you used in your lab but i think uh, there are significant challenges when you try to you know like uh, the the time to develop something and the the cost mm. required is high tech um, and also like to see yeah if if what you're developing is uh, is something that the, that society needs whereas i think mm. in your domain it's completely different because uh, you're working on creating models i guess to to understand how how network effects happen and uh, how people behave in a way And I think that Mm. that is like a bit, uh, it can be used across many domains to create something Mm. tangible. Mm.
1: Yeah. The knowledge can sort of be applied to different fields, basically, because there's no product as such, like there's no innovative product that I'm coming up with as such. But I think the knowledge and the way we can uh, push that forward, I think is is something that's interesting and will hopefully uh, change people's lives for the best, for the better. (laughs) (laughs) The better, not the best. (laughs) No, not the best. Correct. (laughs) But uh, that that's why I started doing economics, and I hope like I can do something tangible i mean I mean I think when I started doing economics my 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 thinking was oh econ- economists are the ones who like make policies and make things happen, whereas uh engineers are the ones who just uh are working on the computers and uh, whereas uh, like afterwards like post uh, sort of going through. The journey, I realized, I mean, every field has its own contribution to make. And I mean, engineers probably contribute more than uh, economists in terms of tangible stuff like, like buildings, for instance, bridges, dams, uh, all these hydroelectric projects. So that was not necessarily true. <laughs> but you were right.
0: Everyone works on computers these days. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I mean, you're
1: True, true. Like, I think it's, uh, it's unavoidable. But I think it's nine to five versus uh, a job that really allows you to set your own time limits. I mean, you need to be very motivated and disciplined, also. That's true. Um, but, like, gives you the freedom of going to feel like, doing uh, real innovation and real stuff. I think it's
0: super interesting. Now, a lot of research fields are hiring people or they're using skills in machine learning, speech to text. Um, especially like a, applied to economics and uh, and related domains. Can you tell me a little bit more about the research projects uh, that they're developing that necessarily require these techniques? Things? So um, I, I had like a friend who had a project on
1: uh, social media and like tweets, she was looking at tweets. So she was she scrapped tweets from the web, and she was trying to analyze like what words are being used to see if the sentiment is positive and negative. And as a function of that, she could predict certain economic outcomes. And so I think that was super cool. And then there were a couple of other people who wanted to uh, a similar project where they wanted to interview people and and they, be, they basically record their interviews and uh, they they look at certain words or the way they were uh, speaking. And I mean, I haven't used uh, natural language processing to be honest, currently but they do they do things like that and try to understand uh, like not just from the quantitative data, but also qualitative and what more can it tell besides just uh, the normal numbers. And I think that for machine learning also, they, uh, it's used more and more actually, it's considered super fancy, like you have a list of variables and uh, you want to know like which variables predict outcome X more and so what things you should be looking at. There are loads of techniques that are being these days.
0: I think a lot of it is geared towards kind of understanding what people's opinions about certain things are without directly kind of because if you ask directly i guess you you create a turbulence in the system and uh yeah. and you can't really have uh an objective answer so sentiment analysis is probably a good way to do it and also like uh, If you go through like um, podcasts or recordings, of, that's also another mm-hmm. way to
1: it. Yeah. And there are also like machine learning algorithms and like fancy stuff, which I have no idea about, to be honest. But I think, I mean, at the end of the day, you need to keep in mind like that these these numbers or this algorithm represents people. I think that that's a danger that might happen and like people are just like running random algorithms on the computer and say, okay, do this, this, this. But I think it's important to remember that it is based on people, based on their uh, behavior and to keep this in mind. And I think that's what economists are sort of trying to do, connect Uh, real life stuff to more technical machine learning stuff
0: yeah actually that reminds me it's a it's a bit related to like the field of AI ethics where where now they're developing a lot of models to explain how AI and machine learning techniques work and and how um, the algorithms kind of treated like either the image or whatever like data was input what parts they used as inputs and uh, and why the outcome was what it was because for a very long time they had no idea how how these black boxes worked and I think um, if you combine skills in economics and especially behavioral economics with with ethics and uh, with what people do on AI and machine learning especially for image analysis or like analysis of large text or or audio I think that can be mm. a really I would say pertinent field <laughs> to exploring like better or like more acceptable use technology so Juni, now we come to like the last part of the podcast and I'm going to ask you like what are the what are the recommendations that you would that you have for like our listeners
1: so i think a lot of it we've already covered like in bits and pieces so maybe i just summarize all that we brought out uh so firstly you really need to know what you want to work on in terms of i mean in terms of research projects if you want to get into research if you want to start a phd it's not a good idea to start a phd just for the sake of doing a phd no 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 that's a cross <laughs> you have to be convinced by the research project you're taking a fort because you're going to have so many ups and downs and you really need to like at every step justify why am I doing this? So I think that need, there needs to be clear motivation and you know, like I'm interested in this project because of this X, Y, Z. I mean, you necessarily don't need to know all the projects that you're going to be doing in your PhD, but at least find one topic that interests you, that you want to explore. And like in the in the process, like you don't have to stick to that one topic. You can always extrapolate and add new things to your, to your research repertoire. But before starting it, like you need to be convinced of your agenda. And then secondly, about like when you do research, when you are, uh, or even when you do your master's and so on, always sort of think about how you're going to present yourself in the market for an employer and then try to sort of build that uh, that skill of being able to sell yourself because uh, maybe you're doing like super interesting stuff which is really interesting for you and you know you're so sometimes you're so into into the details of the stuff that we can't like take a step back and see the bigger picture and try to like um, make other people understand why it's interesting and why sort of you're doing this so i think it's it's important to keep that in mind like uh why is it interesting and uh why should they be interested in uh in your work and what what is it that you're doing should be clear from uh, the work that you're doing and, and i mean i think that also will help you sort of sell yourself in the market to better present yourself as a candidate like do i want to go as a as an economist do i want to go as somebody who's finished masters uh, what sort of job opportunities would i be interested in and how can i connect my skill set to, to them basically I, I did read somewhere when i was uh, preparing for the market like it's important to think of uh, to put yourself in the shoes of the employer and sort of to say what are the things that i bring to the table that's going to add on to their project or to their company you need to keep that in mind uh, from a, a younger age and, and I think also like the third uh, thing would be to also um, talk to people at your university or if you're in a company at the company to explore your growth potentials and it's important to to focus having uh, being at a place where you have a place to grow and a place to learn I think that's that's super essential and at some point references are also super important so you need to be able to like uh, do interesting stuff but also not supervise by people but let people know that you're doing this and, so that when you want to change jobs or you want, when you're looking for uh, other opportunities, there's somebody who can vouch for you and say, oh yeah, like you needed super interesting stuff and I was uh, supervising her slash I was a part of this process. So I think that's also uh, something to keep in mind.
0: Wow, thank you. I think anyone who's like trying to enter the field will find it really useful uh, to know like all the points that you've summarized. It's like a nice toolkit to have in mind <laughs> when you start working in the field. Do you have like any books or films that you would like to recommend? It doesn't necessarily have to be academic, just something mm-hmm. that you that you're reading right now or... uh... Or watching right
1: now, the, the thinking fast and thinking slow that I said that, that's more academic, so that would be that's that's a fun book to read. But there's another book which I was really wowed by actually, Where the Craw Dads uh, Sing by Delia Owens. That's uh, that's really a super interesting book. I think it's uh, it's worth reading. It's about this girl who lives in the marshland and how she sort of overcomes life. It's also there's also some mystery there, so I think you'll like it too. And and for exercise, uh, Ting I yes. think both of us vouch for her, she's, yeah. she's super yeah, fun. We
0: uh, fans, that's fans. it. Yeah, (laughs) it is true. Thank you for the recommendations and this wonderfully open conversation about the future of economics research, Juni. It was really a pleasure to talk to you. Merci for having me over. Thank you for tuning in to the research podcast. I'm always on the lookout for new ideas, so if you have any comments or suggestions, please reach out to me. You can find my contact details in the show notes. Wish you a great week and see you next time. Bye.